Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Beatty Chen. Beatty is a PhD candidate in the Department of Computer Science at Rice University. Beatty, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thanks. So I had the opportunity to hear Beatty's presentation at the systems workshop. ML was, I always get confused, ML for systems, systems for ML. This was systems for ML, correct? Yeah. They changed yeah. the name recently too. We submitted this paper to the conference. They first have it called MLSS, and then uh-huh. they later change it to SysML because of the trademark stuff. Yeah. Well, I think there are two different, workshops there are multiple there. different workshops with very similar, with all the same words, but in different orders. Yes. <laughs> Uh, but in any case, you you presented at the workshop uh, on your paper slide, which we will go into. But before we do that, uh, share with us a little bit about your background, what sparked your interest in machine learning, uh, in particular on uh, kind of this intersection of hardware and algorithms. You know, how did this all come about? Sure. So uh, before I studied my PhD at RISE, I had my undergrad in University of California, Berkeley, and I was actually doing some networks research. It's kind of um, still computer science, but a little bit irrelevant. <laughs> um, but that kind of, yeah, that actually... Um, I did interest. my grad my grad work in networks also, like uh, stochastic modeling and all that kind of stuff. You, is that oh, the that, stuff you were doing? No, not the same. Um, Different kind that, of networks? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so we're kind of doing like a software-defined building. And oh, okay. uh, yeah, so that was kind of close to the AI part because you want to automate some process and you oh. want to predict something for people. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Then when I come to RISE, I got interested in the machine learning algorithms because I thought uh, I always have this in mind. All the problems we're trying to attack in computer science, not all, like most of it, the bottlenecks are usually the computation. Not mm-hmm. all the problems are showing this part, but if you think about it, we usually have a brute force way of doing things. And if we do have the computation of power or we have the time to achieve it, then the problem solved. But the problem is we usually don't have that time and computation of power. Mm-hmm. So the, for the algorithm part, what is good is reducing from big O and square to big O n or big O n to constant is usually making that possible. So um, the way I'm doing research is kind of, I always think about what is the brute force way? What is the naive way I can chip this? And can I speed it up? Mm -hmm. Either in time-wise or reducing the memory, any part that is blocking this happening to produce the optimal solution. And we can do approximation. And that's why I kind of doing all the randomized algorithms in my PhD, because that's going to help (laughs) with the memory and time. Meaning the the algorithms are take advantage of randomization or you just are working on a bunch of random different projects? <laughs> <laughs> that is also true because we're using our special <laughs> weapon, this randomized algorithm called locality sensitive hashing, all kind of applications to tackle different problems. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> Both. 
Got it. Got it. Got it. So this locality hashing is kind of, well, obviously at the core of the paper you presented at the MLSIS workshop yes. uh, slide. What is the, the full name of that paper? Let me see. We changed a bunch of times. <laughs> I think uh, the first version, we're trying to say that we're defending for the smart algorithms over specialized hardwares. And mm. then we found a kind of um, offensive to some people because we're not saying hardware development is not good. We're just saying that we also need more progress on the algorithm side. So we're just uh, changing the name back to um, we're beating, like side trying to beat GPU over like CPU stuff. So it's like okay. the result of the paper. <laughs> so though nobody gets offended by yes, CPU, <laughs> be, GPUs beating up on CPUs except Intel, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we actually have uh, three more collaborators after the first version of the paper came out. They also help us uh, further speed it up and by using all those Intel tricks. Before we get into the kind of the core uh, innovation of the paper, what is the motivation? You've hinted at this also. Um, yes. Everything takes too long, but maybe talk a little bit more about the specific problem that you're trying to solve with this paper. Right. So we all know that um, now all the applications like Vision, NLP, and they all kind of uh, have the state of art by using the neural networks. But the problem, mm -hmm. one bottleneck of the neural network is the computation. That's why um, the inspiring GPUs were invented. And then people have the computational power to kind of do this all complicated computations. So the major bottleneck is still the matrix multiplication. And if you can do like large matrix multiplication really fast, then that's kind of solving half of the computational problem in neural networks. And that's why we started from those. Um, the problem, which is like called extreme classification. So basically, for example, you have, you're an Amazon user. So you're typing something uh, like, I want Nike shoes. And then uh, in the back end, hopefully, you're going to have um, a black box, which can, make you, uh, can help you decide uh, which products to show to you. Then mm -hmm. this kind of reduced to like extreme classification because you are typing a query. Does your query belong to for one million classes? Which one is it? One class can be Adidas shoes. One class can be like Nike running shoes, stuff mm -hmm. like that. So for this kind of problem, the major computation is the last layer because you have one million classes. Mm -hmm. Then you have to do all this, um, the major computation over there. And then we're thinking about is... GPU, the only way to, do, to solve this problem. And because we realized for this kind of problem, even GPU, the speed up is not enough because like the high memory access. Mm -hmm. And then we're thinking about, are all the computations necessary? Then the answer is actually no, because majority of it is redundant. Because mm -hmm. in the neural networks, if, if like um, the hidden layers, usually um, you care about the high activations which is like two inner product producing high um, results. And for the last layer is, is like even worse because for those kind of extreme classification, uh, what you care is about Nike shoes, Adidas shoes, but you don't care about um, a headphone. So mm -hmm. that's those irrelevant stuff, like the computation is kind of wasted. But the problem is before you do the computation, you don't know which part are important, or which part does not. Right. And then the hashing algorithms is ex exactly good 
for these kind of situations, kind of predict which computation are going to give you like high density so that you just compute those to do approximation of the few comp uh, for the full computation. And then in this way, um, all the computations in the neural networks will be sparse and including the backwards. Um, so that's how we come up with the problem and uh, find the solution. So you mentioned hashing algorithms are useful here in telling you which of your computations are going to be useful. Uh, why, why and how is that? Um, because usually locality sensitive hashing is very useful for the search or ranking industry. The reason why it is good for finding the nearest neighbors. And in, in the in the neural network space, what is near neighbors is like if two vectors tend to have the similar direction, then the inner product will tend to be higher. Let's assume a uniform norm here. Mm -hmm. So in this way, vector A and B are neighbors if they can produce high inner product. Mm -hmm. That hashing is kind of, if you know vector A, they will, they will, we can spend constant time, find all the Bs which are close to A, neighbors of A, and producing those Bs, which has the higher end product with A. And that's why I call it like a useful algorithm exactly for this kind of situation. Got it, got it. So locality-sensitive hashing, that's something that has been around. That's not something you created. Yeah, uh, that has been like 20 years or been so. Been around for 20 years. And um, you know, what are some of the other applications in which it tends to come up? You mentioned search. Yeah, um, usually so... For locality sensitive hashing, one one big application is uh, if you have let's say one million images or mm -hmm. one billion images, uh, you can't, and then you have a image of query on hand, uh, for example, a cat. You cannot search linearly for the one billion images in a database because that's gonna cause cost you take a long time. End. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So one the only smart way is you save. The one million images based on some kind of structures, mm -hmm. which we call it like neighbors goes to the same bucket. So mm -hmm. that when you, whenever you have a query, they will quickly use the same way to compute the hash code and go to the bucket which contains all the neighbors. So that your search time is bigger one. Otherwise, um, when you type something on Google, it's probably take you ages to search for all the information currently we have now. So we have to reduce this search time to bigger one instead of go in and that's um, all the hashing algorithms are useful producing the hash is it is it kind of a deterministic process or is there a formula or is it a learned process are you learning the hashes across the data set so there are two categories one is the learned one and we're okay. actually on the other side is like data independent but okay. the hash functions are not deterministic. It's drawing from some distribution, and uh, all the hash functions are only guaranteed that the collect, like the, um, for example, you have two items are exactly the same, and mm -hmm. then the probability that searching that element will be one. But if the element has some minor differences, then the probability will be different. So by calling probability, is each time you generate the hash function. Is probably different ones. Yep. So we can only say that is with high probability we're going to retrieve the neighbors. It seems like if the hash function is going to determine the 
proximity of different pieces of data. It needs to know something structural about the data. And I'm wondering then is does that mean that you know you have to do a lot of work up front to um, you know create this hash function uh, based on a given data set and then you know anytime you want to look at a different type of data, do you have to redo that? Uh, no, but we actually provide the, the freedom for users to implement their own hash functions. So there are four things we're providing. Uh, for different kind of similarities. I think for hash functions, um, there are two lines of work. The first one is uh, the learned hash functions. We're currently not going to that line, but people have freedom to add in those uh, solutions to our framework as well. But the mm -hmm. second one is uh, we're focusing on the data independent one. By data independent, I'm saying that not only based on the data, uh, but also based on different similarities. For example, the most useful ones um, in our framework currently is um, cosine similarity. I was just talking about um, if you want two vectors to determine which vectors are around one query vector, then cosine similarity might be the most useful one because that's kind of determining the angle, which is the direction. And another one is like the ranking. So um, they don't care about the, the norm of the vector or like the sequence of the vector, but they care about the rank. Like for a given vector, the, the, the first one, the first dimension is larger than the second, the second is larger than the fourth. Like this kind of preserved order, that's extremely useful for images. Mm -hmm. And uh, there, uh, there are a third one, which is called min hash, which is kind of preserved the Jacquard similarities, like for two given set is preserved the similarity between. So it's actually for different similarity and different, different kinds of data, you can use different kind of hash functions to, ha to achieve the same um, guarantees. Uh, and I'm recently also getting into the learn hash function, that part. But the one particular problem that extremely trouble our uh, framework is, our framework is not um, we're going to change the hash functions or rebuild the hash tables once in a while because we want to preserve the randomness. But the rebuilding part for those uh, learned hash functions will be very long. Yeah, so that's a good thing about the data-independent mm -hmm. hash because um, it is not time-consuming. But the interest in the learned hash functions is that they might be more accurate or allow you to express... Uh, different types of similarity. Yeah, that is correct. Yeah. Um, that's why we are seriously uh, consider this case in our framework because our framework ultimately wants to spend very less time predicting which neurons should be active and then do uh, all the computation on CPU. That's actually a very hard task. You have to do it very quickly. Otherwise, that overhead is gonna kill you. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm talking about like for the learn hash function, although it's very accurate, it's gonna help us like spend um, maybe 10 times if the current time of uh, computing the hash functions. And um, that's gonna make the framework maybe comparatively okay with GPU, but not obvious speed up. So the, the solution is doable. It's just, um, I think there's a time and accuracy trade-off here, yeah. but I we think um, the independent hash functions are along the sweet spots. 
And so what's the relationship between the hash function and the idea of adaptive sparsity? That's a, a concept that you mentioned in the paper. Right. So just considering the random dropout is actually like at each time you're just giving sparsity to the neural network randomly so that you're, it's highly possible that um, you're going to miss some important parts if you do that randomly. So mm-hmm. by adaptive sparsity here is, that's why like for the um, random dropout, the sparsity can maximum goes to like 50% or so. Otherwise, you will decrease your accuracy. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do another experiment, and it's actually finding uh, a lot of like previous papers too. If we can compute all the computations and we only take maybe 5% or 1% of nodes as the new, of the active nodes, then the accuracy will not drop. But the problem is you have to make the, hu- the huge computation to know which ones are going to produce right. you the top ones. So that's inspiring us. Like We do approximate like 5% or 10%. But, so the speed is kind of uh, close to the random dropout. But the effectiveness of it is close to the adaptive top K. So that's why we find the sweet spot in this too. Does that mean that you're applying the uh, location-sensitive hashing in two places, one at the very end for your classifier and then also more deeply uh, in the dropout? Uh, So dropout is actually in parallel with our framework. Uh, I'm just giving an example of how the hashing is going to help. Uh, if hashing is doing random selection of the nodes, is exactly the same as the dropout. Ah, okay. Yeah, Got but it. if is computing the real top k, then that's called the the adaptive sparsity. Mm-hmm. But it's somewhere in between. It's using the same time. It's very efficient as the random dropout because mm-hmm. the query only take big o one time. Right. But it's gonna retrieve you the nodes that is highly possible in that top k. So. I'm just like giving an intuition of what hashing was selecting. It's nothing but just selecting uh, adaptively the active nodes for each layer. So um, what is very useful in the case of extreme classification is because of the full computation, like the majority of the computation is in the last layer because of the number of classes. So that's going to reduce a lot of computation. But for the usual fully connected neural network, each layer... Uh, we can build different hash tables and we can uh, do a sparsity over each layer. So that's not restricted to the last layer. Are there other elements of this approach that we should be sure to cover? There's the application of the, the hashing. Do you have to do anything special in terms of your, your data collection or preparation? Or uh, should you just be able to apply this technique? Um, so... We're actually exploring two directions of extension to this work. So this is our current framework support the fully connected neural networks. Um, but people are more interested in uh, when they have like the NLP or vision problem, they want the CN or LSDM. Currently, what we can do is, at least for last layer, we can apply the same technique. But the problem is for CN or LSDM in the middle, like the, those hidden layers, we have to investigate there to see what advantage is the hashing approach. 
And for another line of work, we're thinking about the distributed. Because it's well known that for the distributed setting, the computational bottleneck is the communication. Mm-hmm. And our slide has its natural advantage here. Because of the we're only selecting, for example, 1% or 5% of the active nodes for each layer. So that in the back propagation, the gradient update is also very sparse. So that mm-hmm. the for the distributed setting, this is natural, very efficient. For for the same reasons that we've talked about previously, intelligently uh, using the hashing to kind of identify uh, and strip out the sparsity. Yeah. How have you kind of measured the results and compared this approach to others? Uh, and then what kind of results have you seen? Yeah, for the results part, that's the most uh, impactful part people care about. Um, uh-huh. So uh, for GPU comparison, we're using the current state-of-art framework TensorFlow and um, also use also run the same program on uh, V100 GPU, which is currently uh, kind of the state-of-art people use uh, to run, uh, to perform all the uh, experiments for those applications. Mm-hmm. And, and also... Um, uh, for TensorFlow CPU, we also try to see that for all those uh, CPU tricks they're using, are we beating them? And uh, obviously, it will be slower than the TensorFlow GPU, but we still do some comparison there to see like there's three lines, uh, which ours is the most efficient, and then uh, TensorFlow GPU on V100 and the TensorFlow CPU on the same uh, CPU machine we're using because we want to still compare with the CPU. Otherwise, uh, we can use a super powerful CPU machine, and then that's then using that to beat the GPU is not uh, necessary for people because we want people to do the uh, same thing on CPU, which is not that costly as using like a VR hundred or mm-hmm. this kind of uh, uh, expensive. GPU machines, and also there's a nice finding about uh, how many cores are we include um, in our CPU computation so that we can beat the TensorFlow GPU. It seems like eight cores to sixteen cores is enough to uh, outperform the same task of um, on on GPU via hundred. So although we're in the in the paper, we're comp- we're using like a forty-four core machine, but okay. uh, we do the obligation study to see where it intersects the performance. It's actually eight to sixteen cores somewhere in the middle. Okay. So we don't. And so with eight to sixteen cores, you're able to to what outperform uh, TensorFlow yeah. on a GPU? Yes. Okay. What what's the problem that you're that you're benchmarking this on? Uh, it's those are uh, extreme classification tasks. Oh, yeah. extreme classification. And can you talk a little bit about it? Are there established uh, data sets and benchmarks for extreme classification? Can you talk a little bit about those? Yes. Uh, so there's a whole repo about all those. Uh, for example, uh, the example that I gave earlier uh, for Amazon data is usually like, yeah, you have query and you have all the products that's like extreme yeah. classification. Or sometimes you have a user typing query and then you have a search results for the finally the website you are clicking. That's like another mm-hmm. case. Yeah, so all those benchmarks are including one repo, all the extreme classification 
feel like people use those as the benchmarks. For the Amazon, you said how many classes are there? Uh, for the data set we're using is six seventy k. Okay, and then use another delicious data set. That's like the one you're where you're predicting uh, links. Yeah, it's like two hundred k. So you've got a first set of diagrams where you've got the three lines, and that one is looking at the slide accuracy. And then you have time on the bottom. What is the time? Is that like convergence time? Yes, like training like time. Training time. That's log scale. Yeah. Okay. So you've got pretty uh, strong results here. Do you, have you had anyone take this and implement it in practice, kind of an industry or for a kind of a live application? Yeah. Uh, I received a couple of emails uh, requesting we have a license there and then people can implement it. And uh, Intel uh-huh. was uh, extremely, of course, they will be super interested. <laughs> 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 yeah, they're working on it to include to their some kind of libraries in the future too. There's one thing that I want to uh, share. Um, so the, all the speed ups we're getting here is not about all those um, C++ or implementation tricks, we don't even use CoolBlast or this kind of uh, libraries for speeding up the computation. We just use all the primitives and uh, all the computations we're saving here are because of the smart algorithms. So because we're only choosing um, 5% of the nodes, active nodes, so that the computation was saved. So mm-hmm. um, I think this framework, um, if Build like can have further speed up if those techniques tricks are applying to this. But this is mm-hmm. just like um, a prototype which yeah. proves that we can do this with smart algorithms. Kind of going back to the results, you found that the um, I found the number here. The convergence time required is over two and a half times less than with TensorFlow GPU. And then I was looking for your accuracy number here. How does it compare in terms of accuracy? There's no accuracy drop. Okay, so you're able to maintain accuracy yes. but um, converge more quickly. Yes. So you've done your benchmarking for this extreme classification task, uh, which has inherent sparsity to it. Are, are there other types of problems that you think that this would easily lend itself to due to the, because they also have high degrees of sparsity? Or do you see this as, you know, are there ways to kind of adapt this approach so that it you can apply it to um, use cases where it, it, they're not quite as inherently sparse? Uh, so you're talking about the approach we're having? Does The that approach have- you're taking yeah. and the applicability and, you know, what are the requirements of the scenarios in which it would apply? Is, you know, would, do they have to be as sparse as the extreme classification task or can you see uh, some ways that they can apply more broadly? It can be uh, applied broadly as, well, as I just mentioned. For example, uh, we're currently working on if we can use this speeding up on the training of BERT, which is very popular recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the difficulty of applying this to an existing framework is we have to profile wh- where is the computation bottleneck because speeding up the non-bottleneck won't help. And because mm-hmm. we're, tra- we're producing some uh, overheads as well, and that's not going to 
sweet the whole process up anyway. So we have to find the bottleneck of the training, and if this technique can, in, this technique needs the sparsity. So if we do an experiment saying that uh, we are replacing our algorithm with like the real top K and it's decreasing the accuracy too much, then it's not worth investigating. Mm -hmm. But if we're, um, for example, choose the real top uh, 5% of the active nodes and the accuracy still maintains, then in this case, there's hope for us to do this approximation because like mm -hmm. the kind of like the ground truth works, but now we just need to speed it up. Yeah. 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 So it depends. Yeah, it depends on the uh, architectures of the network. And, okay. Uh, yeah. So it's not something that you would envision ever being kind of a generic tool on in the toolkit that you would apply to different types of problems. You have to kind of hand tailor the application of this technique to the different um, to different algorithms and and where they're uh, bottlenecked. Why I think this is still generic is because in all those neural networks or architectures, it anyway reduced to the matrix multiplication problem. Mm -hmm. Once that one is there, this should be useful. But it's just like we need to uh, see which where do we where does it worth it to apply to. Okay, got it. Got and it. we're also looking for like a GPU implementation of the same methods as mm -hmm. well um, because. The major bottleneck for this technique currently going to GPU is because of the hashing algorithm. Because for those many years, uh, hashing only has the CPU implementation because it requires a lot of memory. Mm -hmm. Because it's remembering something, right? We save something in the hash table. And uh, recently, we see um, a step forward to the dynamic hash tables and GPUs from UC Davis folks. So for those, I kind of foresee that it might be possible to implementing um, like a locality-sensitive hashing on GPU, and then this can further speed up GPU. And that's like yeah. a, also a possible future direction of the framework. Awesome, awesome. Well, Betty, thanks so much for taking the time to share a little bit about what you're working on. It's very cool stuff. Thanks. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.